Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we have the joy of getting to hear from one of my favorite people to learn from, John Piper. John Piper is the founder and lead teacher of DesiringGod.org and chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He served for 33 years as the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and is the author of more than 50 books, including Desiring God, Don't Waste Your Life, and Providence, the brand new book that we are going to dive into today. As you'll hear, this episode is a little different than our norm here at Journey Women. For a little background, as we planned every episode in our current series, Knowing and Loving God, we prayerfully sought to find the best possible guest to discuss the topic that we were hoping to address. If you know anything about him, then you know that there is nobody better than John Piper to speak on the topic of God's providence. Instead of our typical journeywoman interview, we have the privilege of hearing him read the introduction to his new book, Providence, followed by some excerpts from the book and scriptures read aloud in the English Standard Version that we think you'll find helpful. Our hope is that this episode will offer you an opportunity to reflect upon and meditate on the providence of God. Introduction. Four Invitations. God has revealed the goal and nature and extent of His providence. He has not been silent. He has shown us these things in the Bible. This is one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul says all Scripture is profitable. The prophet lies not mainly in the validation of a theological viewpoint, but in the revelation of a great God the exaltation of his invincible grace, and the liberation of his undeserving people. God has revealed his purposeful sovereignty over good and evil in order to humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, gladness in the groans of affliction, and love in the heart that sees no way forward. What we find in the Bible is real and raw. The prizing and proclaiming of God's pervasive providence was forged in the flames of hatred and love, deceit and truth, 
murder and mercy, carnage and kindness, cursing and blessing, mystery and revelation, and finally, crucifixion and resurrection. I hope my treatment of God's providence will have the aroma of this shocking and hope-filled reality. In this introduction, I would like to offer you four invitations. Counterintuitive wonders. First, I invite you into a biblical world of counterintuitive wonders. I will argue that these wonders are not illogical or contradictory, but they are different from our usual ways of seeing the world. So different that our first reaction is often to say, that can't be. But the can't is in our minds, not in reality. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For example, in the justice of his judgment, God raises up a cruel shepherd for his people and then sends punishment on that shepherd. Behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Zechariah eleven sixteen through 17. This jars us. For most of us, this is not how we usually think about the ways of God. First, that God raises up a brutal shepherd for his people seems to implicate God in sinful brutality. Second, that God judges the shepherd for his worthlessness seems like capriciously condemning what he himself ordained. There are many such scenes in the Bible. And I will argue that in them all, God is neither sinful nor capricious. If we are prone to be critical rather than be changed, we should put our hands on our mouths and listen. We are sinful and finite. God is infinite and holy. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8-9 through 9. I am inviting you into a world of counterintuitive wonders. I hope that you will let the Word of God create new categories of thinking rather than trying to force the scriptures into the limits of what you already know. When Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, part of what he has in mind is the overcoming of our natural resistance to the strangeness of the ways of God. 
Immediately before calling for transformed minds, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty three through 36. In the end, my invitation into the biblical world of counterintuitive wonders is an invitation to worship. God is vastly greater and stranger and more glorious and more dreadful and more loving than we realize. Immersing ourselves in the ocean of his providence is meant to help us know him, fear him, trust him, and love him as we ought. Penetrating through words into reality. Second, I invite you to penetrate through words into reality. Providence is a word not found in the Bible. In that sense, it is like the words trinity, discipleship, evangelism, exposition, counseling, ethics, politics, and charismatics. People who love the Bible and believe that it is God's word want to know what the Bible teaches not just what it says. They want to know the reality being presented, not just the words that were written. The Bible itself makes clear that it is not enough just to say the words of the Bible. The Bible mandates that all churches have teachers. All churches are supposed to have elders and elders are required to be teachers. The task of a teacher is not just to read the Bible to his hearers, but to explain it. And explaining means using other words besides the ones in the text. Throughout the history of the church, heretics have frequently insisted on using only Bible words in defending their heresy. This was certainly the case for the fourth century Arians who rejected the deity of Jesus and were happy to use Bible words to do so. R.P.C. Hansen explained the process like this. Theologians of the Christian church were slowly driven to a realization that the deepest questions which face Christianity cannot be answered in purely biblical language because the questions are about the meaning of biblical language itself. The longer I have studied scripture and tried to preach it and teach it, the more I have seen the need to encourage preachers and lay people to penetrate through biblical words to biblical reality. How easy it is to think we have experienced communion with God when our minds and hearts have stopped 
with verbal definitions, grammatical relations, historical illustrations, and a few applications. When we do this, even Bible words themselves can become alternatives to what Paul calls spiritual understanding. I am going to use the word providence to refer to a biblical reality. The reality is not found in any single Bible word. It emerges from the way God has revealed himself through many texts and many stories in the Bible. They are like threads woven together into a beautiful tapestry greater than any one thread. We are using a word that is not in the Bible for the sake of this larger truth of the Bible. Of course, there are dangers in doing this, just like there are dangers in using only Bible language, which can be twisted to carry false meanings while giving the impression of biblical faithfulness. I will mention one danger among others. Since the word providence is not used in specific biblical texts, we have no biblical governor on its meaning. We can't say, the Bible defines providence this way. We could say that only if the Bible actually used the word providence. Whenever you ask what a particular word means, there must be a meaner if the meaning is to have validity. So, if the meaner is not one or more of the biblical writers, then when I use the word providence, I must assign a meaning. That is what I do in chapter 1. I don't assign an arbitrary meaning. I try to stay close to what others have meant by the word in the history of the church, but I do choose the meaning. You can see what this implies. It implies that the issue before us in this book is not the meaning of the word providence. The issue is this. Is the reality that I see in the Bible and call providence really there? There's no point in quibbling over whether providence is the best word for the reality. That is relatively unimportant. The all-important question is whether there is a reality in the Bible that corresponds to my description of the goal, nature, and extent of God's purposeful sovereignty. You will see in chapter 1 why I use the short definition purposeful sovereignty for providence. But for now, I am simply flagging the danger that it would be a sad mistake to miss the biblical reality by focusing on the Word. A God-entranced world. Third, I invite you into a God-entranced world. Jesus said to look at the birds because God feeds them and to consider the lilies because God clothes them. Jesus' aim is not aesthetic. His aim was to free his people from anxiety. 
he really considered it a valid argument that if our Heavenly Father feeds the birds and clothes the lilies, how much more surely will he feed and clothe his children? This is simply astonishing. The argument is valid only if God really is the one who sees to it that the birds find their worms and the lilies wear their flowers. If birds and lilies are simply acting by natural laws with no divine hand, then Jesus is just playing with words. But he is not playing with words. He really believes that God's hand is at work in the smallest details of natural processes. This is even clearer in Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God does not just feed the birds and clothe the lilies. He decides when every bird, countless millions every year, dies and falls to the ground. His point is the same as in Matthew 6. He is your father. You are more precious to him than birds. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid. That kind of pervasive providence combined with that kind of fatherly care means he can and will take care of you. So seek the kingdom first with radical abandon and don't be anxious. Charged with grandeur, this God-entranced view of the world was not peculiar to Jesus. The psalmist sings to the Lord of his specific care of the creatures he has made. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Psalm 104, 27 through 30. God's involvement in nature is hands-on, the kind of closeness that causes the biblical writers to make declarations like, He makes grass grow on the hills. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord appointed a plant. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. He brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is who makes the clouds rise, who makes lightnings for the rain. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves. This is not poetry for godless, naturalistic processes. This is God's hands-on providence. God does not intend for us to see ourselves 
or any part of the world as cogs in the wheels of an impersonal mechanism. The world is not a machine that God made to run on its own. It is a painting or a sculpture or a drama. The Son of God holds it in being by the word of his power. Gerard Manley Hopkins expressed it unforgettably in his sonnet, God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck this rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Seeing the rising sun, I will never cease to be thankful that in my college days, Clyde Kilby was one of my literature professors. He gave us a lecture once on the awakening of amazement at the strange glory of ordinary things. He closed the lecture with 10 resolutions for what he called mental health. Here are two of them. I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall fully allow them the mystery of what C.S. Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. Even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. Because of Kilby's eye-opening influence, and because of what I now see in the Bible as an all-embracing, all-pervasive providence, I live more consciously in a God-entranced world. I see reality differently. For example, I used to look at sunrises when I was jogging and think that God has created a beautiful world. Then it became less general and more specific, more personal. I said, Every morning, God paints a different sunrise. He never gets tired of doing it again and again. But then it struck me 
No. He doesn't do it again and again. He never stops doing it. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises at every moment, century after century, without one second of respite and never grows weary or less thrilled with the work of his hands. Even when cloud cover keeps man from seeing it, God is painting spectacular sunrises above the clouds. God does not intend for us to look at the world he has made and feel nothing. When the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, he does not mean this only for the clarification of our theology. He means it for the exaltation of our souls. We know this because of what follows. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Psalm 19, 4 and 5. What is the point of saying this? When we look at the handiwork of God in creation, we are to be drawn into bridegroom-like joy and into the joy of an Eric Little running with his head back, elbows pumping, smile bursting in chariots of fire, basking in the very pleasure of God. I am inviting you into a God-entranced world. No. We are not naive about the miseries every sunrise meets. You will perhaps be shocked at the implications of God's pervasive providence in the suffering and the death of this world. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. And the exulting sun dawns on 150,000 new corpses every morning. That's how many people die every day. In a world with this much God-entranced beauty and this much God-governed horror, the biblical command to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, means that we will continually be Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. To know God. Fourth, and finally, I am inviting you to know, maybe as you never have known, the God whose involvement in his children's lives and in the world is so pervasive, so all-embracing, and so powerful that nothing can befall them but what he designs for their glorification in him and his glorification in them. The death of the Son of God ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and nation. The transaction between the Father and the Son in the death of Christ was so powerful that it secured absolutely for all time and eternity everything needed to bring the bride of Christ safely and beautifully to everlasting joy. Romans 8.32 may be 
the most important verse in the Bible because it establishes the unshakable connection between the greatest event in the universe and the greatest future imaginable. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Indeed, How will he not? All things, all things. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3 21 through 23. All things ours. Because the Father did not spare the Son. When Christ died, everything, absolutely everything that his people need to make it through this world in holiness and love was invincibly secured. God the Father predestined it, everything we need, and promised it to us. God the Son purchased it for us. God the Spirit performs it in us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I would like to help as many as I can to know the God of all-embracing, all-pervasive, invincible providence. His word is spectacularly full of knowledge about God's ultimate goal. Cover to cover, it rings with the riches of his grace toward his undeserving people. Page after page tells the stunning story of the nature and extent of his providence. Nothing can stop him from succeeding exactly when and how he aims to succeed. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Goal, nature, extent. The book is divided into three parts. Part one, defines providence, and then illuminates a difficulty, namely the self-exaltation involved in God's aim to display his own glory. Part two focuses on the ultimate goal of providence. Part three focuses on the nature and extent of providence. I have chosen this order, goal before nature and extent, because I think We understand more clearly what a person is doing if we know the end he is pursuing. If I know your goal is to build a house in Minnesota, I will understand what you are doing when you dig a massive hole in the ground. Basements are important in this climate. Otherwise, without knowing your aim, I won't know what the hole in the ground means. 
the nature and extent of the whole is explained by the goal. I refer to the ultimate goal of providence because God is always doing 10,000 things in every act of providence. That is an understatement. Each of those 10,000 things is intended, which means that God has millions and millions of goals every hour. He accomplishes all of them. We don't know most of them. That, too, is an understatement. So part two of this book is not about trying to know all these goals. That is impossible. What I want to know is where everything is going. What is the goal that guides everything? Then we can grasp more fully the nature and extent of his providence. By the question of extent, I mean how much and how completely does God control things, including human beings? By the question of nature, I mean, for example, what means does God use to control things? Is the word control even the right word? It is not my default word to describe providence. Not because the word is false, but because it tends to carry connotations of mechanical processes and coercive strategies. I will use it, but I hope to continually show why these connotations do not attached to God's providence. Providence is all-embracing and all-pervasive. But when God turns the human will, there is a mystery to it that causes a person to experience God's turning as his own preference, an authentic, responsible act of the human will. God is sovereign over man's preferences Man is accountable for his preferences. God's hidden hand in turning all things and his revealed commands requiring all obedience are in perfect harmony in the mind of God, but not in our visible experience. We are obliged to follow his revealed precepts, not his secret purposes. We will see that such is the nature of providence. Part 1. The Definition As God, He is never merely an observer. He is not a passive observer of the world and not a passive predictor of the future. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why God's providence does not merely mean his seeing, but rather his seeing to. When God sees something, he sees to it. Evidently, as Moses wrote in Genesis 22, God's purposeful engagement with Abraham was so obvious that Moses could simply refer to God's perfect seeing as implying God's purposeful doing. His seeing was his seeing too. His perception implied his provision, his providence. 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Genesis 22, 8 through 14. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. So God's self-exaltation is different from human self-exaltation in that by exalting himself, he is not distracting us from what is ultimately satisfying, but displaying it and inviting us into the enjoyment of it. When we exalt ourselves, we misdirect the hearts of others. We try to get their attention and praise for ourselves. We are thus not only encouraging idolatry, but encouraging misery. We are luring people away from joy. 
We are saying, in effect, that it is better for them to admire us than to admire God, to enjoy our glory rather than God's. Paradoxically, then, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is a form of love. For he is the only being whose worth and beauty can satisfy the human soul fully and forever. When God makes his praise the goal of his providence, he is pursuing our full and lasting pleasure. That is love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 3-14 Part 2. The Ultimate Goal of Providence Continued This Christ-exalting purpose of Christ's second coming is not a momentary purpose. It is an eternal one. From eternity past to eternity future, the purpose of creation and providence has been, and always will be, the communication of the glory of Christ. All things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16 That purpose, the exaltation of Christ in all creation and providence, does not come to an end in the new creation. God's providence does not vanish in the age to come, and its ultimate design will not change, that in everything, Christ might be preeminent. Colossians 1.18 To be sure, the event of the second coming will be like none other before or after it. There will be a stunning, once-for-all turning point at the climax of human history as we know it. 
then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. Matthew 24, 30. But we have seen at every point of history, even before history, that this universe is designed in God's wisdom and governed by God's providence to be a theater for the glory of God, manifest consummately in the glory of his grace enacted through the glory of Christ, which shines most brightly in his suffering for undeserving rebels. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Part 3. The Nature and Extent of Providence We do not share God's absolute existence. We do not say, I am who I am. We say with the Apostle Paul, By the grace of God I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15.10 We know the truth implied in Paul's questions. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. We are not God. We are creatures. We are ultimately dependent on God for everything. We depend on Him for our being and for our knowing, especially our knowing of Him. We are because He is. We know because He reveals. We do not originate our existence or our knowledge. He is the ultimate source and foundation of both. And since God's absolute being and revealing is essential to his glory, 
And since his glory is the greatest gift he could give, we are happy for him to be the all-glorious, self-giving God rather than to be God ourselves. God is God, and we are not. He is totally self-sufficient. We are totally dependent. Our being comes from him. Our knowing him comes from him. We know the extent and nature of God's providence to the degree that we know it at all because he reveals it to us, partly in nature, Romans 1, 19 through 21, but most fully, indeed, infallibly, in his word, the scriptures. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Is there a God besides me? Isaiah 44, 8. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. God speaks to us about his providence. That is how we know what it is. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1, 19-21 Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 44, 8. Conclusion, Seeing and Savoring the Providence of God Running through this book like a golden thread is the truth that God designed the world and performs His providence so that His glory in saving us and our joy in seeing Him would be forever united as each increases in the increase of the other. When the immeasurable riches of God's glory in saving us through the slaying of the Lamb are forever and continually dispensed from His infinite treasury, our gladness will increase with every fresh sight. And as our gladness in God increases, 
His worth will be seen as a greater and greater treasure reflected in the pleasures of his people. The all-embracing, all-pervasive, unstoppable providence of God is precious in proportion as we hope for this day to come. And it will come. God will forever be increasingly glorified as we are increasingly satisfied in him. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 57, 5. Our Lord, come. We pray that listening to the excerpts from John Piper's new book published by Crossway, Providence, paired with scriptures read aloud from the ESV, stirs your desire to grab your own Bible and consider God's providence. And that as you consider and think upon who He is, that it will lead you to worship Him, enjoy Him, and glorify Him forever. If you want to use the passages we referenced in today's episode, you can find them listed in the show notes on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. There you can also find more episodes in this series, Knowing and Loving God. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.